0: All right. So if you've been doing marketing for a while, actually, it doesn't even matter if you've been doing it for a while, for a week or a decade, you know that Google Analytics just becomes like the bane of any marketing team's existence. It's a necessary evil. Something always breaks or it's not right or you got to find a developer to help you set it up. And I looked it up because I wanted to mention it for this, but Google Analytics launched in November 2005, 16 years ago. And yet it's still the thing that most marketing teams uh, obsess over and get stuck with so much. But there's a better way. And that way is called Aribi. It's a awesome new company, Aribi.io. They got customers like Sony, Pizza Hut, Audi, Panasonic, and Sky. So what they do is really cool. They automatically capture every activity on your website. So imagine someone visits your blog. Oh, nope, didn't have to set up a tag for that. It just automatically captures. Someone visit your pricing page. Somebody did something on your website. You didn't have to go and set that up in advance, which is always the thing that drives me nuts. Oh, we didn't have a goal set up for that. They'll automatically capture everything that's happening on your website. And you can do it all without a developer. That is the selling point for me to not have to always beg my friends on the product team to do drug deals and get this stuff over the line. Once you connect your site, you can just start capturing everything your website visitors do. And you can even ask questions like, hey, do people are people who read our blog, are they more likely to buy than other people? Or people who visit my pricing page, are they more likely to convert than somebody else. It's awesome and you should totally check it out. And they're hooking you up with a great little discount, 20% off any plan. But most importantly, like to me, marketing is about simplifying the decision-making process. And if you can have someone that works 24-7 like an analyst on your team for you, which is what Aribi does, it's gonna give you a huge benefit. So you can go and check it out, aribi.io slash DGMG, and you can start a free trial. And if you use the coupon code DGMG, you'll get 20% off any plan. I'm launching a new site, dgmg.co, in a couple weeks, and I'll be using Aribi to track everything that I do. And I think you should go and check it out. So aribi.io slash DGMG. Go and check it out, and hopefully you can say goodbye to Google Analytics. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do, and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me, and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast. This is the place where I share B2B marketing lessons and learnings every week. My guest on this episode is April Dunford. She's a startup marketing strategy and positioning expert and the author of one of my favorite marketing books from the last couple of years. Obviously awesome. This is a live Q&A that we did with a bunch of DGMG members. You're going to love it. Here we go. Okay. So I'm just going to start talking to marketing with you, if that's okay, because sure. this is what people want. They don't want, to hear, yeah, yeah. they don't want to hear from me. So funny story is a bunch of people have told me about your book since when did your book come out? 2019-ish? Like
1: it feels like, a, it feels like eternity ago, to tell you the truth. But yeah, 2019, May 2019.
0: Okay. May 2019. And I'm just curious as a marketer and a creator, from your standpoint, has the book done better or worse than you expected?
1: Oh, like exponentially better than I
0: expected.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wait, okay, like, so let's d- be honest. You, like, can,
0: can you go back to that? Like, who were you at the time? Like, I yeah. wanted to put a book out in the world and what?
1: Well, so so the idea was this. So, you know, I had already been consulting and and doing this version of a consulting business where I'm very focused on positioning work. I'm only doing positioning work with B2B companies. And one of the biggest problems I had was that I would have to have these kind of long conversations at the beginning. You know, a founder would call me and say, hey, I think we need to do positioning. And I'd have to do this big explanation of how we were going to get it done. And I kept thinking I should have like kind of a hefty blog post or something that explains this methodology that I could send to founders and they can read it and figure it out. And so I tried blogging my way out of it and it was too complicated. And I was like, no, this is actually a book.
0: Did you have like, did you have a framework? Like, is this your way of doing it or the book process turned it into a framework?
1: Nope. It was my way of doing it the book was just writing it down. Then that was the second thing was I would get these calls from founders that, you know, at super early stage companies that they're not even paying themselves. They're not going to pay me. <laughs> like, you know, they, they don't have any money. And instead I'm doing these coffee meetings and I'm trying to explain the whole methodology in a coffee meeting, right? I'm like, okay, here's what you do. <laughs> Write down some notes while I talk. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I have this book and it'll serve these two purposes. One, for CEOs that don't get the methodology, I could say read the book, you know, you're either with me or not and you know if you think it sounds like bullshit, don't hire me. <laughs> and then for these little guys, you know, I can slide it across the table in a coffee meeting and just say read that, come back with better questions. <laughs> and so I thought this thing would be really niche, right? Like it, like I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to sell thousands of copies. It was like it was written for a very distinct purpose. And then that really didn't have all that much to do
0: with book sales. Well, no, it it probably was a way for you to launch in a a great business around like consulting and coaching and, you know, people hire you to help do positioning.
1: Well, I was already doing that, but it it certainly accelerated that.
0: Why do you think we're in this like renaissance where like, what would Al Reese and Jack Trout say if this many people were out there talking about positioning, but what do you think has changed in the last year and a half? Like, Why are so many people caring about this now?
1: It's an interesting question. I I have kind of a theory about it. I think in marketing, we tend to work on the pendulum swings back and forth between us being very, very focused on what I would call marketing first principles. And I would consider positioning to be one of these things like sort of Bedrock marketing fundamentals, like shit, you have to have figured out in order to do anything good in marketing, in my opinion. Uh, versus uh, hacks, right? Like we're just going to hack some growth, man. <laughs> Tips and tricks. <laughs> I'm just going to hack my way through stuff, and I don't care about any of that bedrock stuff because that sounds hard. I just need to, you know, do something hacky and get it done today. And so, and I think we swing back and forth, and I think where we need to be is somewhere in the middle. Right. But when I think we're coming off a few years of, you know, if I'm rolling it back, 2018, 2017, 2016, where, you know, it was all about hacks and tricks and the one thing that grew my whatever by nine thousand percent. And I think what happens with that is if we get too focused on that stuff, we realize that it's not sustainable. Right. Like a lot of this hacky stuff is not sustainable and it's not sustainable because the fundamentals underneath aren't there. And so then we kind of swing back, right? And then we're like, ooh, we need to get a bit more strategic about this stuff. And there needs to be a little bit of planning. <laughs> and I think right now, we're maybe in the pendulum swinging back the other way. I I guess, I don't know. Otherwise, I have no idea. <laughs>
0: maybe, maybe we're just talking about it. I love it, talking about as, it. I love
1: maybe it. Maybe somebody wrote a cool book that everybody's maybe, reading. And yeah, yeah so someone wrote a book and, and
0: it's become wildly popular. But I love your book and I love positioning and just thinking about overall company storytelling because i think what you said is important which is like right now everybody's talking about clubhouse okay clubhouse right. is a thing i think it's going to stick around but it's an example of in marketing in tech in this kind of you know bubble that we live in we love to get obsessed with the new thing right where i love your book because you go back and you kind of unpack some of the timeless lessons like look this concept isn't new but it often is the thing that can have such storytelling has the biggest impact on on your business. I'm not sure if you talk about it as storytelling, but my friend, Andy Raskin, he said to me, and I've stolen this line from him now, but he said like, your story is your strategy. Mm. And I think that that's such an important line from a marketing perspective, because it's like, and you talk about this in the book, it's not just marketing's job, but if you have a clear story, or in, in this case, if you have a clear position, that then dictates how you go to market what type of sales team you have, how you service customers, who you partner with. And like, it's almost the 80-20 rule of running a business, right? It's like, it's the one thing that will make all these other things easier. If you have a very clear story, a very clear position, it's companies that try to be everything to everyone or have, you know, fit. Well, how many people do you talk to, April? That's like, when you tell them like, okay, well, which persona are you focusing on? They're like, well, you know, we actually have six. And it's like, okay, well, how about you pick one and let's start there? I just think it's like, I wish every marketer would start here as opposed to like immediately in some type of Google Analytics funnel.
1: Right, right. In my opinion, if you think about it, everything we do in marketing has a fundamental set of inputs, right? And a lot of shitty marketing, in my opinion, is the result of crappy inputs. So, you know, if we think about it, like we're going to go do lead generation, right? So I'm going to run lead gen campaign. What do I need to know to do that? Well, who am I targeting? Right. But who, who am I targeting? And then what's the thing going to say? So what's my value proposition? And then who am I against? So, you know, who do I need to win against? And so how am I different and better? So, you know, when I started out marketing, everybody seemed to be doing stuff by gut feel. And worse than that, it was a little bit like what I would call the marketing fashion assessment, right? So it'd be like, hey, we're going to do blog. Why are we doing a blog? Because everyone else is doing a blog. (laughs) Hey, we're going to do a podcast. Why? Because everyone's doing a podcast. And it's like, is our audience there? And what is our goal in doing a podcast? And I used to refer to this as the golf tournament problem. And this was because once I took a VP marketing job, at a company and we were like 70, 80 million revenue. And I was in there in the first week of my job, the head of sales walked in and said, look, I know what we got to do, golf tournament. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we need, golf tournament. And what I realized is that if I'm just picking stuff to do, because it's popular or because whatever, you know, I got no good argument against the golf tournament. You know, I'm picking stuff for whatever reasons. The VP sales is picking stuff for whatever. He likes to golf. So why not have a golf tournament? Instead, I think we need to get serious clarity around the inputs, right? Which is who do I got to beat? who am I up against? How am I different? What is the value that my product can uniquely deliver? Who am I targeting? What is the market I intend to win? I need those things before I can do anything in marketing and sales, including storytelling, in my opinion.
0: I love that answer. Until
1: I'm like, who's the hero? Who's the villain? Who's the whatever? Where does that come from? It needs to come from somewhere.
0: Yeah. I love that answer because like inside of this group, DGMG, there's 2,300 members and people ask a million different questions. And They're hard to answer because so much of marketing and business answers, it's like, well, it depends, right? Because because there's so many variables, (laughs) like you mentioned. It's like, I think, so I used to work at a company called Drift. And when I would be working with the CEO on on anything, the very first thing that he would do would be like, hold on, before we talk about pricing or before we talk about this event strategy, let's get on the whiteboard and we're going to map out the guardrails for this project. I'll never forget it. I remember us planning our first event and I said to him, okay, so let's talk about the guardrails. And he's like, well, I want at least a thousand people there. It's got to be in Boston because we're not paying for travel this year. We want to have speakers that are not too super technical market. And so we listed out a bunch, but that, and what hit me when I read your book is you talk about positioning as context setting. You need to make context marketers out there listening for the decision that you're going to make. And so I love the point that you made April, which is like, look, do the analysis. If none of your competitors have a podcast and you think your customers listen to a podcast, then maybe that's an opportunity where you should go start one. But like, maybe you have no experience doing that and no budget. There's all these variables, your team, your budget, your size, whatever. I got questions coming in. So Jonathan, why don't you come off mute and hop in and say hey to April? Cool. Hi, April.
2: Um, I'm a huge fan so I've read your book and I think that the book is a really good process for repositioning like a current product, right? Like you find the competing alternatives, you find your best fit customers, especially you find like the tail end of the bell curve of your customers. You find like the raving fans, right? That's what you said. That process is really good for repositioning like a current product. But like, what if you're, what if I, uh, this is my example, we're developing a new product line. Yeah. And so finding the quote unquote best fit customers of customers of a product that doesn't exist yet is is really hard, right? And so positioning for a new product line- Well, you don't
1: have them.
3: (laughs) Exactly, right,
2: exactly. So I guess the general question is like when you're developing a new product line or launching a new product entirely, what would kind of be your suggestions for process for positioning? Yeah, so I I got opinions
1: about this. I get asked this one a lot. So um, if you got something that's brand new, right? You hopefully have, if you believe in lean startup methodology at all, you've gone out and you've done some customer discovery. So you've gone out, you've interviewed a bunch of folks that you think might be interested in buying your stuff. And what you end up with is what I would call a positioning thesis. And so your thesis is... I think I compete with these folks. I'm different in this way. My differentiated value looks like this. Therefore, these kind of customers are going to love me. Therefore, this is the market I'm going to win. But it's a thesis. And so you're going to put that out in the market and test it, whether or not this thesis is correct. Now, my experience, having launched, like back when I used to be a VP marketing, I launched 16 products into market. And our thesis was never Totally correct. Even once. (laughs) So we launched it in the market and, uh, you know, people are weird and customers we didn't expect to love us, love us. And, you know, things we thought would be really hot weren't. And so because of that, what I generally counsel people on is not to actually freak out too much about your positioning before it's launched. Like I to keep it kind of loose because it is going to change and you're not going to get everything right. And so my bad analogy, which I'll give because I get until I find a better one, I'm going to keep giving this one is like you built a fishing net and you think the fishing net is for tuna, that's your thesis. But, you know, if you launch it as a tuna fishing net, maybe it's great for tuna, maybe the tuna fishermen take it, maybe it pulls up some tuna, maybe it doesn't. At launch, I would kind of just, you know, maybe keep it a little loose and just say, you know, it's a net for big fish of any kind, man. And then you sell it like that, go to the part of the ocean where there's all kinds of fish, Toss it out there. See what you pull up. Maybe it's grouper. And then you're like, shit, it's a grouper net. I didn't know. Then you can tighten up the positioning once you start seeing the patterns and get really, really tight on it and then just go run at the grouper thing.
2: Makes sense. If Uh, that makes sense. Big big (laughs) nets. Big nets all the way. Thank you. You're welcome. It's
0: so important though, because marketers, we love to just like hold on to, we love to hoard this idea. Like we think that we're going to have a whole new way of doing things and we're not going to tell any about it anybody about it but on tuesday <laughs> february 15th we're going to launch this to the world and yeah wow, it's going to work we're like yeah. the thing that i'm obsessed with now is like i think what's so cool about positioning april is like 20 years ago you could write positioning and have to do this like big product launch to test it but today you got social media you got advertising yeah. you got content like you can quickly get feedback on your message and then and then adjust and so to your point your bias should be for getting feedback on your positioning, not in the fact that we created it.
1: In the beginning, this is all you got, right? Because again, we're pretty much always wrong. Like, <laughs> like you know, we think we got it, but we don't. Here's the other thing too, is your positioning, even when you've got it, like even when it's awesome and you're totally nailed it, positioning isn't a static thing. You don't get to just set it and forget it, right? Because Your product's not static. Your market's not static. Your competitors are out there doing stuff. So, you know, the landscape's changing. What makes you different today isn't necessarily differentiating six months from now or a year from now. And you might be in a totally different market. So people, I think, can overthink this stuff. Like, it's a living, breathing thing. We're going to set it as good as we can dial it in right now. But we're going to have to come back and check it every six months or so and jump in and say, are these still the same competitors or is this still the same differentiators? Does our value still resonate like it did to customers still prioritizing things the way they did?
0: It's going to change. All right, let's go to Ivana. Hi,
1: hey guys. So my question is also
4: obviously related to positioning specifically in SaaS and B2B, but I'm wondering like, how can you stand out and make your brand stand out when you're competing within a landscape of like very similar products, right? So it's like, you're all offering very similar things. And I know that If I work for this company, I'll think like, oh, but we have this differentiator, but like our consumers, they look at us
1: as the same, right? So where do I start like brand-wise? Yeah, so here's how I like to think about this. You're right, our markets are stupidly crowded, like stupendously crowded. Like there's so many options and I don't even care what you're selling. Like There's a million different things out there that look just like you. But here's the deal. Every day, if you're successful and you have reasonable traction in the market, Every day, customers look at that landscape and they pick you. Some of them do, right? So they pick you for a reason. Yes. This is the thing. Like a lot of times I get these companies and they'll be like, well, we don't really have anything different. And there must be something different. How are they making the choice? Otherwise, there's something there, right? Like if you're winning deals, you're winning deals on something. Now, sometimes that something doesn't feel like a lot, like sometimes it feels like, oh, we got 98% the same, but there's this little 2%. But if that 2% is significant, that's enough. It's enough, right? I got to make a decision on something. The trick is being able to contextualize that 2% in a way that people understand why that bit of differentiation is really, really super important and why they should pick the one that's got that 2%. And sometimes that's all you've got. But yeah, that helps. I still think like the, the best way to think about this is to think about, you know, who are your alternatives, right? If you didn't exist, what would they pick, right? And then what have you got that's different? What's the value of that? If you can figure that out and get it really tight, then you can ask yourself, well, who cares a lot about that value? Like there's some people out there, again, they're picking you over all the other people out there. They must be doing it for a reason. What's that? And can we get really tight around that to make that obvious in everything we're doing across marketing and sales? You pick people like you, should pick us for this reason.
0: It needs to be a company and it needs to be a company level thing, too, right? Like, if you yeah. try to do this solely in marketing, then you're just kind of like scrambling. Where, like, if I work. give you, I can give you an example from my past, for example, which is like when we were early days of Drift, trying to create this category of conversational marketing, there was lots of other chat products and other things in the market, but our wedge was, we were the first people that were specifically building this use case for sales and marketing. Right. And so that helped drive the positioning because we said, look, there are other great products out there, right. but they're built for product managers Not or in you, messaging. right?
1: Not for you. we are built right.
0: for you. Exactly. Right. So, so are you a product manager? Maybe you're better off using that other product. But oh, are you in sales and marketing? Do you care about driving revenue? Then we got that for you. Another angle could be you can also win by being simpler, right? Easier to use, having a better brand. But but like I think these have to be like company internal level conversations because they need to drive. Like if you say that you're going to win on brand, for example. How are you going to connect that to the actual product experience, and and what does that mean other than okay, it's
1: got to be true, right? Like you, right. <laughs> like you can't, like we don't get right. to, unfortunately, right? We don't get to just make shit right. up and say, hey, we're the best at blah blah. You know, our marketing cannot be writing checks that our product can't cash, right? right? right. Like, <laughs> like it's got to be true, you know, because customers are pretty good at sniffing out our
4: bullshit. So you guys are basically saying that. The differentiator isn't really like having the coolest brand. It definitely has to be tied to something about the product itself that is a differentiator, whether it's something very small and cash in on that small thing.
1: thing. Sometimes it can be something that you wouldn't even traditionally think of as a feature. So, for example, a company having deep expertise in a particular use case is valuable, even if there's no feature difference, right? But yes. if you say, look, nobody else is selling the marketers. We're selling the marketers. We got the same product as everyone else, but we're going to help you get going. We understand your use case. Our support team knows how to answer your question. You need to integrate this thing and a bunch of things. We know how to do that because we've done it a thousand times. Like It can be things like experience and expertise in a particular thing, It could be things like, you know, we just, we understand this segment of the market better, or we have people on our team with a set that the other folks don't have.
0: Yes. April, that was the exact thing that we did. We, as a marketer, I'd leaned on the credibility of the founders and said, look, these two guys have spent the last 20 years building sales and marketing products. One of them was the chief product officer at HubSpot, blah, 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 blah. And so like, even if there was no differentiated feature to Ivana's question, right? Like, we tried to win on credibility and trust and experience. Like we've been doing this for 20 years, even though this is a new product, here's why you should. It's like, you ever go to a restaurant and you're like a new restaurant in your town when you can actually go to those things opens up and it's like, Oh no, that's April. restaurants yeah, she, she, she has a sushi place down the street and now she's got the new, whatever place you're going to go there. Even if you've never tried her food, if you've only gone to the other restaurant before.
1: But like, I'll give you an example, like, you know, and I have tons of them, but I worked at a company where we were in the enterprise CRM space and We arguably, if you stacked out feature function, our stuff versus the leader in the market at the time, like our stuff was crap. Like, Like the leader in the market had been around 10 years. We were brand new. They had 5 million more features than we did. We had one thing, one that was differentiating, but the key to our success was figuring out the value of that one feature and who it was valuable for. So in our case, the key to it was we could model relationships between people in a way that no other CRM could do. And for the longest time, we didn't really understand who cared a lot about that. It turned out investment bankers care a ton. So we sold a deal to an investment bank. And then after that, we just sold investment banks. And we just walked in and said, hey, we're CRM for investment banking. And they're like, well, wait, wait, don't you compete with this 2 billion revenue company in the space, whatever, that does everything, everything. And we're like, oh, yeah. They're amazing. We love those guys. They're like the world's greatest general purpose enterprise CRM for not, not for you. Well, for wall street, you want this thing because we, and we'd show them our one differentiated feature and literally land deals on that. The key is what's the value in that differentiated feature, even if it's small, and then who cares a lot about that value? And you got to close the loop around that.
4: Awesome guys. Thank you. Very enlightening.
0: You're welcome. All right, Chad, you're next on uh, April Dunford Radio Hour.
1: Oh, here we are.
3: (laughs) Great. How are you guys? So I had a question and I think it maybe will apply to both of you. Um, From a positioning standpoint, if let's say your company is more or less the first to market in their space, Mm -hmm. you know, in the traditional positioning book, it says if you're first to market, you realistically have the biggest advantage of keeping that positioning and keeping most of that traction throughout the entire life of the company. But at the yeah, same the Rise, time, the Rise of Trout book says that, and man, is that ever wrong? Right, right. And based on your comments about not, you know, not staying static in your positioning, I think that yeah. I think that that is absolutely Like If that correct. was
1: true, we would be using Ask Jeeves. If that was true, we would all <laughs> be using MySpace. Like if
3: that was true, 100%
1: you know, creative MP3 players would be a thing. If there's one thing we've learned in tech is that early entrants are very often the folks that create a market category do not survive to own it.
3: Sure. So I guess my second part of the question then is if my current company's positioning is has been using first to market for a good deal of time and they're starting to innovate some other products besides their first one, Right now, our default main bread and butter product can be easily mimicked by another competitor that comes into the space, but it's ideal for that industry. Would you think that it would make sense to potentially create a category for that industry so that they continuously innovate and can add these new products onto their list instead of just you know hitting home that one positioning strategy?
1: So you've got so you've got a thing that that Here,
3: so I'll give, you don't have
1: I'll give much of a you know it's not defensible, right? So you've got a thing and it's really different, but somebody could come and copy you and wipe you out. Is that the idea?
3: Yeah, correct. Or a, even another company that's not in the space. So I'll give you the specific example. We are a payments platform for uh-huh. cargo and logistics company. That space is so antiquated, nobody else is doing that. And we've had great traction so far, hammering right. that positioning as the first to market and evolving that technology. But at any given time, I feel like a payments platform is relatively easy for another competitor to come in and take a decent amount of market share. So do we continuously keep building on our positioning as far as, you know, as we bring new products in to be like the logistics technology company type category aspect or just keep hammering home our our current, you know, first to market?
1: This is is more than just a positioning question, right? This is a bit of a company strategy question. But here's the thing. Just because somebody can compete with you doesn't mean they do. Ever. One of the great things that I learned from working at a big company for a little while. So most of my career I spent at startups was startups kept getting acquired. And so at one point I ended up at IBM. And at one point, you know, when I was at the little company, we were always like, oh, gee, IBM could come in here and wipe us out at any minute. You know, they could just enter this space and wipe us out. And then I was at IBM And at one point, I was trying to build this little feature on my product that did 300 million revenue in a year. And I wanted two developers to build this little feature. And it took me a year to go through the process to get approval, to get two developers to work on a thing for six months. Big ships move slow, yeah. (laughs) It's like, it takes a lot of ocean to turn that boat, right? So, you know, and then if you looked at IBM, like the way we made decisions was nothing like the way I thought IBM made decisions. Like, we literally made decisions like this. We were like, if we can't make a billion dollars in five years, there's no point doing
5: it. Right.
1: Like, so I worked on a thing where it was like, you know, it's a new thing and and that that was the goal. It was a billion dollars in five years. Otherwise, why do we bother? (laughs) And so I think that a lot of times we worry about Big competitors doing stuff in our space and they just never do. So that's the first thing. Maybe nobody ever comes into your space. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about it until something happens. The second thing is you're owning the space right now, you're dominating right now. There's a lot of things you could build that, will, again, would be that 2% differentiator that the general market leader is not going to copy because it's only important for logistics. But you guys could build it and essentially build a moat off a couple little things that they just can't build it because. It would hurt them in other markets that are way more valuable to them.
3: It's great feedback.
1: Like in my earlier example with the CRM thing, we had it. We built shit that the market leader would never do because they made ninety percent of their revenue in call centers, and we were selling to the opposite of call centers. We're selling to investment bankers. They're like the anti-call center, and so we built a bunch of stuff that you know was no big deal to build. But they were never going to copy us because it wouldn't be interesting to anybody but investment bankers. And we were crushing it, investment banking. They didn't even have one account.
3: Great insights, as always. Thank you. This
0: episode of B2B Marketing Leaders is brought to you by DGMG. That's my members-only community for B2B marketers. There's over 2,300 members. And it's awesome because it's really like having a sounding board outside of your company Inside of the group, you can get feedback, recommendations on tools, campaign ideas, and more. I see people ask questions about hiring, team structure, ad targeting, copy feedback. It's incredible. And it's the reason that I'm in the group basically every day sharing stuff too. I feel like it's a group of people I want to be around to get better as a B2B marketer too and because you're here listening to B2B marketing leaders you can get in the group for just $1 for your first month and then after that it's 10 bucks a month and it's super easy to expense you could even do an annual it's like 100 bucks a year makes it really easy to send to your CFO flies under the radar it's 100 bucks it's really easy but there's 10 to 12 new posts every single day and you can go in there daily and you can even go and see all the content from last year. I know that if you're in B2B marketing, you will go in there and you'll be like, huh, I get what Dave was talking about. I know you'll see the ROI from the community alone instantly and even more so now that you can get in there for your first month for just a dollar. So there's a special link in the show notes of this show where you can go and sign up for a dollar. Go and check that out. On the money. Okay, let's go to Jonathan. Jonathan, I'm going to get you in the mix here. April's on fire, so keep bringing it.
2: I'm surprised more people aren't asking questions. This is like gold. I get direct access to April's country. (laughs) I know, it's it's, it's killer. It's ridiculous, yes. (laughs) Uh, April, do you have any strong opinions about the relative challenges or pros, benefits of repositioning for a B2B product that has kind of consumer level scale, right? We're talking like 60,000, 70,000 customers, right? Like I think my takeaway from your book is that there's a lot of like the discovery for figuring out the new positioning requires a lot of like qualitative interviews. And that's cool. I'm like, for sure, that's always necessary, but you know, at, at this scale, um, oh, can't I, talk to can't talk to 60,000 customers. Right. And so would you have any suggestions or, or approaches? How would you differentiate your approach for a product?
1: I've done this yeah. a bunch of times. And so here's the thing, like the more variability there is in your customer base, the more interviews you're going to have to do and the more you're going to have to go get data, right? And so the less variable, like if I'm only selling to investment banks, like they're all the same, you know, and I can talk to five of them and I know what investment banks are like. But if I'm selling to like, I don't know, convenience stores or dry cleaners, or I don't know what, and there's a bajillion of them, then, you know, they're all different. And some of them are big and some of them are small and they've all got different things. And so in order for me to start seeing the patterns, I need to be able to do that at scale. So Mm -hmm. in the book, a lot of the examples I'm giving in the book are more enterprisey, B-2-B, bigger deal sizes, like deals where there's an actual salesperson involved, right? If there's no salesperson involved, you're going to have to do a customer research effort to go and figure out the answers to some of these questions. And it's harder than it looks, because what you're looking for is stuff that it's very hard to get out of a survey. Right. And it's easier to get out of an interview. But even in an interview, you're going to have to do it in a very careful way. And mm-hmm. so the way I've done it you know, before, we've been looking at it. So the first thing is you might have 20,000 customers, right? But not all of your 20,000 customers love you the same. And right. when you're doing a positioning exercise, what you're trying to do is get the positioning really tight and crisp such that it attracts these really good fit customers so that you get a pipeline full of the best people, right? Mm-hmm. So the first thing you want to do is when you're looking for insight, I want to eliminate the not good fit people because trust me, you got tons of them. And so I don't care what those people think. I want to know what the really good fit people think because I want my yeah. position to resonate there. So first I would do some kind of customer happiness score. And so I always use net promoter score. I know everybody thinks it's stupid or it's problematic, frankly, but it's easy to administer. And if all you need is a swag on customer happiness, it's a pretty good way to do it. So you can net promoter score people. That'll give you like, I got the happy people. Mm-hmm. And then you got to figure out how am I going to get this information I need? And, and what you really want is what were you doing before we showed up? That's Mm -hmm. the first thing, right? Right. So you're trying to figure out what was status quo in the account. Two, what happened that made you think you couldn't keep doing it that way? So I need to understand this purchase trigger. Then the next thing is, okay, you decided you couldn't keep doing it this way. You're gonna do it another way. What was your process for figuring out what a potential solution might be? Did you make a short list? How'd you build the short list? Who was on the short list? And then the last bit is you picked us, why? And you're trying to figure out that, but it's really hard to get to in a survey. It's better in an interview. In an interview, you can get to that. My experience too, is that it, it doesn't take thousands of interviews, but it might take you 50.
2: Fair enough.
0: Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Good question. Okay. We've got some in chat in the Q&A and a i will read them for you. So uh, here's one. This one is from anonymous attendee. Boilerplate messaging is a brilliant tool. When have you witnessed it being used well or poorly to drive change in some of your clients?
1: Boilerplate messaging. Well, here's the thing, right? Like we never use boilerplate messaging. We have boilerplate messaging as the starting point for messaging for other uses. Like in my opinion, that's how messaging should work, right? So you have your positioning, you know, so we figure out here's who we compete with. Here's how we're different. This is the value. These are the people we're going after. Here's the market we're going to win. Great. Great. then I can build messaging from that. And what I used to do when I was a VP is we're going to build a messaging document and the messaging document is going to say, this is the tagline. This is the 50 word description. This is the hundred word description. These are our three main points of value. And this is the approved copy and how we describe those three points of value. We have these 17 key features. This is the stuff we use to talk about that. Blah, blah, blah. So we'd have all that stuff and it'd be approved. Now, Everything you go to do with that boilerplate has a specific purpose. So if I'm going to go write messaging for the web page, well, the web page has a very specific function in my funnel. And so it could be for lead generation. It could be for lead acceleration. You need to know in your own sales process. And then you're going to take that boilerplate and make it sing for its purpose on the website. Same thing with you're going to go do a trade show and you need a banner. What's it going to say on the banner? Well, it depends on the trade show and it depends on, you know, and you're going to start with the boilerplate and then you're going to use it for whatever purpose you need it for. You're going to build sales materials. Same thing It's what's the sales material for, I think there's value in having boilerplate messaging as a starting point so that you don't get too much message drift, right? right? I don't want people to say, oh, let's just start with the messaging on the homepage or the thing we did for the trade show. And then we'll do another thing and then another thing. And the next thing you know, the messaging is all over the place. Well, it's like if so, somebody
0: says, hey, send us your logo, like you need something to send somebody. And, and the, yeah. like that's 80% sure. But like,
1: yeah, any, somebody like, says, a oh, you know, give me the compelling... company description.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because like at scale, right, if you have a company, I mean, to think of your experience at a, a massive company with, you know, tens of thousands of employees, there's got to be some level of consistency in like, hey, here's an asset to like, you know, we're going to send this yeah. out. But well, I was going to ask you about this, actually, maybe this is a good place to do it. What is the out, like, it's one thing to go do positioning. But then what's a good way that somebody has gone and then implemented this? Because it's not just going and updating the homepage headline, right? What are all the tactics to go and do that?
1: It's not. So the thing is, you've got positioning, and then what are you going to do with it, right? And typically, if we're in B2B software, the two big things you want to immediately do with your positioning is you need messaging, typically for the website or something, and you need a pitch for your salespeople, right? So... What I do with my clients when we work through positioning is we work through the positioning stuff and then we take that positioning and we translate it into a sales narrative, which is like if I'm sitting across from a good fit prospect that meets my qualification for a good fit and they say, hey, what do you guys do? This is the story I tell them. And I like to use that as a way to test your positioning as well, right? So if if I can put it into a pitch, then I can take that pitch and put it in front of customers and test the new positioning and see if it works before I go forklift all the messaging all over the place. So in my opinion, what you should do after you've got new positioning is you should build this pitch that essentially articulates your unique point of view on the market that says, here's the problem, here's all the way, here's all the different approaches out there right now to solving the problem, but there's a gap in those. And we believe, we believe, our point of view on the market is if you really want to solve this problem for customers like you, this is the important stuff. This is what you need. And you're either with me or against me on that, right? And if you're with me, then it's like, well, good. If you believe that, then that's what we believe. That's what we built. Here's the value we deliver. Here's the features that enable that value. Here's the proof we can do what we say we can do. Buy some stuff. So we construct those sales narratives. In my workshops, when I'm working one-on-one with a company, we'll do the positioning. Then we'll take that positioning and turn it into this, what I would call a sales narrative, which is like, how do I tell that, like a customer-facing story around that?
0: That's good. Cause I think like one of the best lines I've heard about messaging is like, until you believe you have the right story and then everyone in your company is sick of talking about it, yeah. only then do you feel like you're on to something. Like there is some, some
3: <laughs> yeah, kind of, like
0: years and months of repetition. It's not just like, well, you know, we read April's book and we did it and it's not working. Well, like, do you have weeks and months and years of this message and marketing and in marketing in all different forms? Like, like totally.
1: consistent, let's see. You just have to grind it and grind it and grind it. And it needs to be consistent across everything you're doing, right? It needs to be consistent across marketing, sales, all the stuff you're doing. And you are just at it over and over and over again until everyone on the marketing team in particular is super sick of it. <laughs> and that <laughs> right. is the exact moment where it is just starting to hit. <laughs>
0: right, because that, that's internal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Anthony said, boost my levels a little bit. Anthony, I'm turning up the gain for you. Don't worry. <clears throat> okay, go oh, ahead. Uh, I'm
5: like far away from my No, market. it's
0: all good. Go ahead, Mark. Let it rip.
5: All right. So Tamai is in the space of doing debt to B2B
0: SaaS companies.
5: And one of the problems we keep on running into is that people will decide not to engage with us because they found cheaper capital, maybe by a percentage point. Right, And so we sit between equity and traditional banks and we're lending like $1 to $4 million. So it's effective in growing a company. Like if you spend our capital in sales and marketing, double or triple the size of your business, that's that's very effective. However, our competitors are offering very similar features. So how do you articulate or how do you win over a, a client on a term, how we're flexible versus just cheaper.
1: Well, so this is the thing, right? So you got these competitors and they kind of look just like you and what's your differentiator? So what do you got that the competitors don't have?
5: Yeah. So for example, we're very flexible in, let's say your burn cap. So we're comfortable with companies burning to grow, whereas others might not be as comfortable.
1: And or, the other ones, they would still lend you the money, but it'd be shitty terms or. Yeah. It'd be like a little bit more
5: restrictive.
1: More restrictive. So here's yeah. the thing, right? So you got this flexibility thing, let's say, yeah. right? Like you got to teach me the value of that. Because if I don't know that, then you just say, well, we got the flexible thing and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, nah, how does that impact my business? How does yeah. that impact my ability to do anything? So the flexibility thing, that's a feature, but you need to be able to take that feature and say, here's why this matters for your business. That's yeah. the first part. Second part is you need to understand who cares about that because yeah. not every startup cares. Yeah, And make sure that you're targeting the ones, you know, that bit is actually the deal breaker, right? That bit is actually important. So it's the match between the feature and the people that care a lot about the feature. So first I got to take the feature, translate it to value. And then I got to say, well, what are the characteristics of a company a startup that really makes them care about that value. And let's just pitch to them. And yeah, that's where we're going
5: to sell That, that becomes very difficult because there's not a lot. It's a very well, I mean,
1: there's, there's people time. out there doing this, right? Like, so I did some work with ClearBank, for example, who's yeah, in this exactly. space. Yeah, and, same. you know, they're very specific about who they target. They're not just out there trying to sell to everybody, right? Yeah. Because the way their whole thing works is they can analyze your return on your marketing spend, your digital marketing spend, and approve you based on that. Mm-hmm. So there are very specific types of e-commerce businesses that fit that profile. And if you're outside of that profile, well, then they're kind of not for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool. good question, Mark. All right, Shannon, let's go. Shannon asked a good question in Thanks, chat me. and I asked
4: Hi, April and Dave. Thanks so much for bringing me up. So my question is around personas and specifically like, so I I think as a company, we're, we're pretty good at determining um, like what our personas motivations are. And we're recently kind of retargeting from CHRO L and D space into CROs and like, we're Mm -hmm. calling them the ambitious growth leaders So as I said, I think that it's pretty easy to figure out what their motivations are, but I think we struggle a bit with determining what their behaviors are like and where the commonalities exist between them. And I'm wondering if you have any best practices in that process.
1: Um, And why does it matter? Like, why do you need to
4: know that? That's a good question. So I'm actually pretty new to marketing coming out of sales. And the way it was described to me, was that like the product marketer's job is to figure out what those motivations are. And my job as a kind of experiential marketing person is to figure out what their behaviors are. Right, right. So
1: I'm going to say a thing that's a little controversial. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we spend way too much time on personas. And I think as marketers we do a lot of effort on persona work that never gets used. And so in my experience, and you know what, we don't spend nearly enough time on, we don't spend nearly enough time on segmentation, which is at the company level. So I'm trying to sell to certain kinds of businesses. Like what I really need to know to do great campaigns is how do I target the businesses that are most likely to buy? That's the first thing. And then in the personas inside, like, You know, I need to understand what their motivations are. I need to understand how my value matters for them. Otherwise, it's not a good expression of value. But there's a lot of stuff I see people including in persona work that I'm like, it's neat. It's intellectually interesting. I just don't know how you're ever going to use that stuff. (laughs) And so I work with companies that bring out these giant binary things of like persona stuff. And I'm like, I don't know where you're ever going to use it. The other thing is, I think we do way too many personas when what we really need to be focused on is who's the champion in the account and how do we arm them? But that's a whole other discussion, too. So I don't know what the answer is to your question. Like, if I was you, I might go back to my boss and say, why exactly? You know, I was always that person, right? I'd be back there going, so why are we doing this again? But this might be one that it's like: Do you actually need to know what their behaviors are? Like, I'm assuming there are some behaviors in a certain context that are important for your product. But
0: can I I give you a spoiler? Do you know what CROs and salespeople care about, Shannon? You were a former sales like Do you know what you care about at the end of the day in that job?
4: Generating revenue.
0: Period. True for every sales role ever. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. You
0: know, like Gong, Gong is a good example of a company that has basically aligned their brand to that and their content is all around that. And so if you know the motivation, but it's not matching on your end, then maybe what the company has to offer or what you're offering doesn't match that. And so yeah, I am motivated by revenue, but uh, your brand or whatever is, is not interesting to me. And so like there's more diagnosis to be done on the offer side of things.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. You need to have your value needs to be aligned to that persona, right? Like those two things need to jive. And that's it. Like in my opinion. Like all this other stuff about, you know, I see this persona stuff and it's like Carrie likes art and she goes to the gallery <laughs> on the weekend. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> Why are we running? Right
4: I've been sinking so much time into like stalking all these types on LinkedIn and looking at what they like and follow. So
1: You are going to like some of that's really important, right? It's important for (laughs) campaigns. Like I need to know where these people hang out because sometimes I want to run campaigns at them, you know, where they are as opposed to where I am. But sometimes I feel like we go a bit bananas on the persona stuff and we end up with a bunch of persona work that doesn't actually get used anywhere and we kind of lose sight of the goal. Got it. Thanks so much. You're welcome.
0: I love it. She says, you don't need personas. I'm a bit like uh, okay. personas, honestly. Well, like like I, yeah. <laughs> Most people, because mo- most people just like, they wanted the default in marketing. Is to like, oh, I got to spend time in a template or a framework where it's like, the bigger reward is like, do you clearly know who you're going after, right? Like at Privy, where I work. We don't have a formal doc that has personas in it, but everyone in the company knows that we're focused on small e-commerce brands. And typically it's the owner who's very busy and doing 15 other things. And so therefore the way that we need to market is blah. And that is, we just say that's our ICP. And so like, we just use that as a guardrail for how we talk to the world.
1: Yeah. It doesn't need to be way more complicated than that.
0: All right. I got more questions. We got like 10 minutes. I'm going to rapid fire through some of these questions. And by the way, if you're still here, feel free to raise your hand. I'll give the hand raisers, the brave ones that want to talk more priority over the Q&A. So do that while I read some of these. This question is from Jennifer, came in a little bit earlier. She said, I've just developed and launched a digital campaign targeting one ICP. We have similar issues internally where we can't align on one or two targets because we can sell to everyone. Mm. At what point do you recommend we analyze whether or not the target messaging works or doesn't and go back to the drawing board?
1: Like, if you think you got too many ICPs, like, you know, they may, it does make it really hard to market, right? If you're trying to just kind of market to everybody, I would tend to, again, go back to who's super happy. If I look at my existing customers, like, and I just follow the love, right? Like, so if I go back and I look at who's super happy, what's common amongst those super happy people, and can I define my ICP that way and then target them that way? And so
0: think I, don't I think that's that a question though question, but Jennifer, but Jennifer's saying, like, I'm not sure I see her on here anymore, so she, no, she's not. But the point is like if you're a marketer inside of the company and you think you have too many personas, you pro- probably there's a good chance, and especially if you're in early stages, oh, hey, Jennifer, if you want to hop on, you can especially uh, in
1: the early stages, because especially you just in the early stages, like the bandwidth, the budget, the people, the time,
0: like if you have no traction. You can be like, the model has got to be like, look, we can sell to five personas, but we have zero traction. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on one core persona. You focus on the low
1: hanging fruit one, right? Who's the easiest? Build
0: build our business off of that. And by the way, then you learn, you actually go do marketing and sales. And so you learn what works within that segment and then you can clone it and say, okay, now let's bring on persona number two and and persona number three.
1: This is Jeffrey Jeffrey Moore bowling pin strategy, by the way, if you want to read the book on
5: that. Oh, I love it.
1: But yeah, it's from Crossing the Chasm. We've been doing this since 1985. <laughs> Again, coming back to fundamental first principle stuff, right? Like we've been talking about bowling pin strategy since the 80s. Like this is how you get it done. Everybody knows this is how you get it done. We have to rediscover it every like
0: five years. Well, look at Apple. Did Apple come out and say in in the '80s when you know it was Apple like we got a a personal computer, an iPad? Like, no, there's an evolution as you learn through your customers and different personas evolve. That's okay, right. I'm going to shut up and get through these questions. Uh, Marco, this question is from Marco. Other than working with your clients, how do you keep updated and learning? April, what are two books that you always keep at your desk? Asking for a friend.
1: Oh, do you know what's so funny? I'll show you what's sitting on my desk right now. So there's actually three. So the first one is the old school Bible and positioning reason wow. trout. It sits here on my desk. And sometimes I yell at these guys. Um, and then, and then this one, which if you haven't read this, this is like, if you do B2B and you have read this book, there's something wrong with you, which is called the challenger sale. And even better than that one is the follow-up one, which is this one. If you're in marketing, challenge your customer, these people have the data to back me up that personas are bullshit. So that's the conclusion of this book, Personas are Bullshit. And then if you're into the storytelling thing, Donna Miller's Bill and a Story Brand, like if you're trying to do case studies and shit like that, in my opinion, this is very good structure to do it. And is that my three books? Yeah, I think that's it. That's it. But I don't know. You know how I find out about new stuff? I just other people tell me about it. People are talking about it.
0: Most importantly, though, you got the classics. Study the classics.
1: Right now I'm going down a bit of a rat hole on this. I'm trying to teach this concept of how to build a good point of view pitch. And so recently I went back and reread like the foundational stuff for sales which include challenger sale, challenger customer, spin selling, the new strategic selling, blah, blah, blah. These are like the books that all the salespeople read. And that was super interesting to go back to that old sales stuff. And I don't know, I'm into sales.
0: What's the point of view thing that you mentioned?
1: Well, so here's the thing. If you're doing a really good job of positioning, the way it manifests itself in your marketing and sales is... And particularly, your sales team. Your sales team should be able to confidently articulate your point of view on the market. So, and if you read through, for example, Challenger Sale, the data in here tells us what does a B two B buyer want out of you in a sales process. What they want is they want to make sense of the market. They don't actually want to know about your product. They want to know what are all the different approaches to solving this problem? And which approach should I pick? And then once I pick an approach, then I'm going to worry about which product. And so we do a lousy job of that in general. Good point of view pitch does exactly that, in that it basically says, look, here's the problem. There's these kind of approaches. You know, you could do it on a shared drive or whatever. It's cheap, it's free, it's easy. Or you could use solutions that look like this and they'll put them in a bucket here's one approach here's another approach here's the pluses and minuses but hey for people like you for people like you you need to have these three things and if it doesn't have that we don't believe is it our point of view that a very good solution to that kind of a problem for people like you has to have this and that's not me selling my product that is me selling my point of view on how you should look at the market And so I'm kind of obsessed with this idea right now because I'm teaching my customers that and I do it one-on-one in workshops, but I don't do a very good job of just like explaining it.
0: So if you're a DGMG member and you're listening to this, do you want to know why April's really good at this? Because this is her craft. This is what she studies. This is what she learns about. This is what she reads about. And so like, if you're like, I want to get better at positioning my company and you never pick up a book. Like this is what it takes. Buy the positioning book, buy challenger sale, buy April's book, soak it all in. And what you learn though is the reason April is referencing books from the 80s is because people have not changed. Tools and technology have. And so like I love that you are. There's a lot of fundamental
1: stuff. stuff. Like, I mean, we don't need to reinvent it. Fundamentals. Right. Like if we're trying to build like people have been building sales pitches since the dawn of time. Somebody has had a lot of really smart ideas about this. So if I'm trying to figure out how to build a really good sales pitch, I should go look at what everybody else is talking about previously and build on that. I don't need to start from scratch.
0: Yes. Okay. April, this was fantastic. I'll give you a couple of minutes to hop off. If you're still on, come off mute and just, you know, we'll give we'll give April a quick round of applause for coming here. You know, it's... it's Thanks
1: for having me. The, this was The fun. hardest
0: part, you probably would do a ton of speaking pre-COVID and, you know, the hardest part is like presenting into the black hole of Zoom. And so... Thank you. This
1: I know you get to the end and it's just silence. You're like, yeah, okay, you I'm just, done. And then it's just How like-
0: quickly can you hit the end of meeting button? <laughs> Thank you. Go buy April's book if you haven't. It needs to be on your desk. April, you rock. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank
1: you. Bye.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast. If you got something out of this episode, then I know you'll get even more out of DGMG. That's my members-only community for B2B marketers. There's over 2,300 members in there right now, and it's awesome because it's really like having a sounding board outside of your company as a marketer. Inside of the group, you can get feedback, recommendations on tools, on vendors. You can get campaign ideas. I've seen people post, hey, what do you think of this ad? Do you think this copy would work? Is anybody using this new tool? What do you think of this vendor? And it's the reason that I'm in the group basically every day sharing my own stuff too, because it's just a community I want to be a part of. And because you're here listening to B2B Marketing Leaders, I got a special deal for you. You can get in the group for just $1 for your first month. After that, it's $10 a month. And let's be honest, it's super easy to expense at your company. It'll fly under the radar. There's 10 to 12 new posts every single day. And you can go back and see all the posts since the beginning of time. I know that if you're in B2B marketing, you'll see the ROI from the community instantly, and that's why I want you to join for a dollar. I want to make it a no-brainer. So go and check it out. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, a special link just for you to go and join for $1. All right. See ya.